Welcome to the Creative Flex Podcast, where we shine the light on the journeys and talents of people across the globe. I'm your host, Sean Dean, and I hope you're entertained and most of all inspired by these stories. Please subscribe on Spotify and iTunes. Thank you so much, and I appreciate you. Good afternoon, Rosebud, Ben Oni. Welcome to the podcast. Really appreciate your time. I know you're busy. It's been a while. You know, we've known each other for about a decade, I would guess, approximately. Haven't seen you in a while. I mean, you know, we're all busy and it's hard to keep in touch, but I do respect you uh, an awful lot and uh, I appreciate your talents. So I want to speak with you and get the audience to kind of know you better. I, I know, you know, you're well known in, in the world of uh, creativity, but let's start off with the seven train love. I know you've had a long time relationship with that train line, and I know uh, the purple line. For those that don't know, it goes to Mets Shea Stadium. Is it still called? And it's not called Shea Stadium anymore, right? It's uh, the baseball field. Have you taken that recently, Rosebud? Um, not since I got back from visiting family in March. I went to. Texas in late February to see my family um, and to attend a AWP conference because I just had a book come out. That's the Associated Writers Program Conference. It's a huge conference, but then the coronavirus broke out. Um, so they didn't cancel the conference, but I opted not to go um, because it just seems like not a good idea to be with like 10,000 people. <laughs> but a lot of people ended up not going anyway. I did do one small reading in Houston. And then I had another reading in Austin for the book, but I decided not to go to the reading in Austin. And then they ended up canceling the Austin reading. So we got back to, my husband and I got back to New York on March 15th. And yeah, I haven't taken the train, I would say since February. It just, you know, um, we haven't really left Sunnyside. I have the privilege of being able to work from home because I teach remote as it is. Um, I teach for UCLA. I teach for Catapult and for um, another poetry organization called the Speakeasy Project. So mm. I'm very familiar with Zoom. But yeah, I miss I miss taking the train. It's, you know, it's inconvenient and it's always breaking down, <laughs> but I miss the seven train. Yeah, it's, it's also one of the elevated lines that we have. Right. In terms of what you know about, we're, we're jumping into phase one of opening. So we're taping this on the 29th of, or is it the 38th or the 47th of May? Who knows? Uh, it, it is a Friday. That's, that's for sure. By the time that the audience listens to this episode, uh, it's going to be in June. So at that time, I believe it's June 8th, um, phase one are going to open up in New York City. So like the construction workers... Uh, retail t- curbside will all open up. So it's progress, but the mass transit, public transportation is going to be difficult for the passengers. Right. I, I think it's the 13th, not the 8th. I could be, I think it's the 13th. But you know, yeah, if you have to take the train, you have to take the train. And they're saying that it's really not spread through, as far as they know right now, it's really not spread through just like casual contact, but repeated contact with an infected person. Again, I'm not a doctor, don't take my medical advice. But I think that, you know, as long as people follow social distancing rules, like, which I know can be hard when taking transit, um, I think things can be avoided. I mean, I'm just going to approach the reopening with a lot of caution. Like I 
am not going to be the first one in line at for the restaurants or the bars or you know things like that. I'm going to slowly ease myself back into it, which is hard because you want to you know people are meant to be in community, so it's hard to you know social distance from people you love and yeah, agreed. Very and, and as humans, we're we're built to be in packs, be around other people. We're social animals. We're not we're not made to be isolated right. um, or quarantined. So. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be trying. So, talk to us about growing up with a mixed ethnic parents in your community. Um, it wasn't easy. Um, my mother converted from Mexican Catholicism to Judaism before my old my older brother and I were born. So, you know, she knows like biblical Hebrew. She knows like all the prayers in Hebrew, um, but she doesn't know like modern Hebrew. So, she couldn't go to like a Hebrew speaking, you know, community and carry on a conversation of modern Hebrew. But she, you know, she converted full on to Judaism. So we were raised Jewish, but it was a little bit hard because I I did face discrimination um, growing up from our congregation. We switched twice. Um, And each time we, I experienced a lot of discrimination actually growing up. So that was hard. And my relationship to Judaism, um, largely became one through poetry, which is partially why I'm a poet. I felt like the poets that I read also felt a little bit like outsiders or they were, you know, survivors of not just the Shoah, but anti-Semitism itself. And it wasn't that I found kinship through discrimination, but I found I found a way to belong by people who wrote about not belonging in particular in the world. And so as someone who's mixed, I've had that experience quite a bit. I will say that my mother's family, um, my Mexican side, never really, there was no, I mean, they just treated us like regular people. They still to this day love my father very much. So I always found a lot of comfort in my mother's side of the family. They were always there for me. They read everything I write now. Um, And they're just very supportive and I'm, I'm grateful for them. So how did you hone your craft? Did you keep a journal? Obviously schooling was a part of it. Uh, and it's also a skill that you have. So how, how did you work on your um, your poetry on creating it? I just always wrote poetry for as long as I can remember. Um, and I always read it. And um, I feel like in in certain in certain aspects of Jewish culture, there's a lot of emphasis on reading and writing and keeping historical memory, whether it's within your family or the greater context of what it means to be Jewish. Um, so I just always wrote poetry, um, because that seems like the best way to communicate very complex ideas that I couldn't say in straight sentences, so to say. Um, and a lot of like what I read were not what I read, like in secular school, because I went to Hebrew school and secular school and secular school, it was mostly like dead white men that we read. So I had to go outside of that. And I found a lot of um, what I was looking for through my father. He's not a huge reader of poetry, but he tracked down some poets like Paul Salon, um, for instance, that he wanted me to read. Um, And I didn't really discover poetry, poetry until like college, I feel, because there was, I was exposed to all sorts of different poets. Um, and I kind of was like liberated from the very narrow selection, I guess, that 
you know, I was offered in secular school. And then you you eventually got an MFA from the University of Michigan, who is a big mm-hmm. uh, arch rival of, of my alma mater, Ohio State. <laughs> After right. receiving that degree, uh, which is, I'm assuming, a very difficult one to get a lot of work that you put in what did you do after did you move to New York after that no I actually moved to Jerusalem for uh postgraduate studies with the intention of eventually getting my PhD and I did not do that I had a, a miserable time in Jerusalem um and I did not get my PhD and then I came back to New York and to the end of 2007 and st- I struggled for a very long time, and I've talked about this um, on other in other interviews and stuff. Um, I struggled for a very long time, and it wasn't until like I got my first book accepted for publication in 2012 that things started to actually make sense to my family. Because when you come from a working class family, becoming a poet doesn't make a lot of sense to them. Like. My parents just wanted wanted me to understand, like from a very young age, like we don't have the money to send you to college. You're going to have to get a scholarship or two or three, which is what I did. And then when they found out, oh, she wants to be a poet, that mm. did not really <laughs> make them very happy. So it's not until recently, I would say, like as of last year, when I I won the Alice James Award for poetry, which is which is a great and award, and I'm like honored to have been selected. Um, that they really were like, okay, she's, you know, serious about this. And that's how many years later in 2019. And tell us about Alice James. Um, well, it's a, it's a book publisher and they publish books that I feel really challenge all that poetry can be. They've published a lot of poets that I respect greatly, um, like Kaveh Akbar, Elizabeth Lyons. Um, and when I, when I won the award, I, um, they called me on, I believe, a Sunday. It was either Saturday or Sunday, and it was like a cold, cold winter day. And I got the call early in the morning. I missed it. And they left a message like, hey, this is Alice James. Just give us a call. And I'm like, this is suspicious. So I thought they had selected me as like a finalist or maybe I was a runner up. And then when they told me I had won, I didn't I didn't believe it. I was like, are you sure you have the right person? And then my husband was like, how many people have the name Rosebud Benoni like it's you? Um, so they're just a very progressive, um, book publisher that I feel is in line with the values I hold, um, with social justice and representation and just really letting the poet take like a lot of liberties, which is what this book that is coming out in 2021, um, through them that won the award, it's called it. This is the age we end discovery. And that book takes a lot of chances. It's a very experimental collection of poems. Um, and it's a weird book. And the fact that they chose it as the winner, like meant the world to me, because I really never thought it would be published. It's really, really a weird great. book. Uh, and, and tell us about your book, Turnaround Bright XYXS. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah. Oh, Turnaround Bright Eyes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I know. So I put the X for a number of reasons. Um, the X stands for like the unknown. It stands for an Xing out of the I, like literally your physical I and then first person I. Um, and I, I'm carrying on this theme of the bright eyes in the next collection and also a novel I'm working on. The bright eyes kind of represents this unknown force that is not, you know, from, from us, but affects us greatly. I'm still trying to figure out what that is, but I guess you could call it inspiration or you can call it 
spirituality, or you can just call it otherworldliness. And again, I'm not quite sure what the bright eyes are exactly. Um, but, you know, it's also a play on that song, Total Eclipse of the Heart, where if, uh, by Bonnie Tyler, where she would say, turn around bright eyes. Um, I really love that song. I think that's like the ultimate power it's a great karaoke song ever. Well. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> yeah, well, I can't sing, so I will spare you that. But um, it's just a great song. And the video is so crazy. The video makes absolutely no sense. And so Turnaround Bright Eyes is kind of like a um, ode to all that pop culture had to offer about exploring, you know, um, our connections with one another uh, without making like what I call straight sense, right? It's just, it's kitschy, it's fun, it's serious, it's dramatic, it's melodramatic. Um, and that's what I was trying to do with this this collection, Turnaround Bright Eyes, is like an exploration of what it means to be queer and mixed and falling in love, like, and getting married, which is a very mm -hmm. heteronormative <laughs> institution. And um, And yeah, it's just, it was just sort of like a love letter to not living right right like taking all the chances and failing and then trying to not make sense of that but just enjoying like failing and enjoying like making yeah, a lot looking of looking forward to, to reading all, so. all these things are upcoming <laughs> i'm really <laughs> excited for that so september 11th as a new yorker it's always going to be I, I remember exactly what i was doing pretty much every minute of that day that morning you were commissioned by the national september 11th memorial and museum to write a poem before we we get into that poem and what your inspiration was beyond the the tragedy of that day what do you remember from september 11th 2001 so i was actually a graduate student at michigan um and i was having a terrible time at Michigan, which I'm sure is a Buckeye. <laughs> yes, You're a Buckeye, right? <laughs> that probably makes you really happy. Um, I did not adjust well from going from New York City to Ann Arbor. Um, and I remember I woke up that morning and all my friends in New York, I had, I just had a landline at the time. I didn't even have a cell phone. And uh, I had like, my phone just kept ringing. I had a bunch of messages, you know, and then they stopped. They suddenly just stopped. Like I couldn't get through later to anybody um, because I guess like, you know, they cut cell phone service or what have you. But um, I remember going onto the internet because I didn't have TV or cable. I was a poor graduate student. So I just had, you know, um, internet and seeing that a plane had crashed. It was the first plane had crashed in the Twin, tower, uh, Twin Towers. And I was, I just, I was like, this is, this is weird. Like I didn't, no, and then it was updated, and then there was a second plane, and then I like really started to panic, and I was trying to call all my friends who had called me, and um, I realized that this had happened. I think it was like twenty or thirty minutes ago, so I was getting the updates later because I had dial-up. It was like you know, it was a different time before high-speed internet, and I just was shocked. And I remember going out with a friend of mine who's now a professor at Yale named Anthony Reed. He's a brilliant uh, fiction writer and critic. And we were just walking around Ann Arbor and I kept trying to get through to friends and I couldn't. And, um, you know, I was just, I was devastated. And eventually I did get through to them. And I just remember them telling me like, listen, when you come back, because I visited quite regularly, um, it's going to be hard, it's going to be different, you know, it's, and that still kind of holds true, like, 
the New York that I remember from my undergrad years is not the same New York yeah. that it is yeah. today. Life in general, so. travel is different. The TSA, it, it's, it wasn't really around pre 9-11. So, and I know yeah. Michigan's a university that has a lot of students from the Northeast, from the New York City area, from Long Island. So I'm sure as with a lot of the universities across the country, Michigan probably had a lot of uh, children with family uh, in those towers yeah. or adjacent to those towers. Yeah. And I had started, I, so I won a fellowship to Michigan. Uh, well, I didn't win. I was awarded. <laughs> I was awarded a fellowship, but I still chose to teach my um, second year. And I had just started teaching that semester and I had a number of students from the East coast, uh, quite a few actually from New York city. And they were just devastated. And I don't, I remember arguing at one point with the program coordinator that I couldn't, I, I just had to let them like be for like at least two weeks. And she's like, no, we need to carry on as usual. And, you know, I think about things like right now, like I taught a, um, a workshop recently on poetry and physics for catapult and it's not graded or anything. It's an independent institution, but I kind of just let the students write whatever they wanted. I let them like take a lot of liberties because I think during times of crises, like you can't, you know, rules are good, but if somebody is really suffering, you can't force them to do work. Um, so anyway, about the, the poem though, um, about the September 11th poem, I just kind of, I thought about what it was to respect something that's broken and maybe you have to let it be broken. It doesn't mean it can't ha achieve a wholeness, but it's not going to achieve the wholeness it once had. And that's what that poem's really about. Um, I think that when people long for like the old days or how things were after a great tragedy, um, they really need to realize that the present that they're experiencing now is not going to you're not going to reverse the arrow of time. That's like impossible, you know, um, to, to throw physics into the mix, but you kind of need to let something that's broken be as it is. And then if it achieves a new wholeness, that's great. And if it doesn't, you need to like examine what it is, what it's becoming. Yeah, it's a beautiful that. poem. Uh, and you also reference the seven train in it. <laughs> so, uh, I, I definitely <laughs> noticed that. that that must've been such an honor. So how did that come to fruition being commissioned? Yeah. The Poetry Society of America PSA, um, contacted me and they said, do you want to do this? And I said, yes, I would like to do this. And then I went to the September 11th museum and they said, you know, write about something, write about like one of the artifacts left after the um the towers fell and i was just really taken by this one shard of green glass um which i think they might have found a little bit odd that i chose to write about that but there was something about it that you know it looked like not a jewel but it looked like something just really precious and i didn't ask i didn't want to know very much about it i kind of just wanted to look at this piece of green glass that was all jagged and, and slightly cracked still like you could see the cracks in it and I just thought about well you know I don't care what this was before I care like to examine what it is now and that's when I carried over the theme about examining the fragments that you become after a crisis or after a um a major catastrophe and you know, where do you go? Thank you for there? sharing that. I reached out to you yesterday just to discuss situations going on around the country. It yeah. would be great if you had a poem that you could read to the audience that you felt portrayed peace and coming together. Yeah, 
Yeah, sure. So let me let me pull it up. So I don't know if you're familiar with the many worlds interpretation. Have you heard of that? You know, there's this there's this large discussion that happened in the 20th century, um, and I won't get too much into it in in the branch of theoretical physics, where there's this idea that quantum versus classical um, realms, the quantum is like electrons and quarks and things that are very small. Um, they can be in positions, superpositions, um, and so they can be in more than they can be in more than one place at a time. And actually, they are, and it's been proven that um, through things like photons that you can see something exists in two different or three different or four different states. But for some reason, when we try to look at things at the macro level or classical level, like you sitting there, you're just. It seems to us, to the observer, that you're just sitting there, right? You're not in two different places at once. So the Copenhagen theory, and I swear I'm. I'll get to the poem, but the Copenhagen theory, um, which is deeply flawed, um, that try to explain it by, by, by creating this thing called the wave function and how it collapses when something is observed. So if you're observing an electron, the moment that you're observing it, it gets stuck in one spot and that's where it is. Along came this very promising graduate student named Hugh Everett. And he challenged this notion by creating the many worlds interpretation, um, where he actually included the observer in what it means to like make a like make a decision. So every time you make a decision that affects the quantum level, it branches out, it splits. And so when it splits, you have different possibilities of what you could have done. So let's say you pick up an orange and you decide at that moment to move it to the left. Well, in another mm -hmm. world, you moved it to the right. Like I'm oversimplifying it. And it's not that the one on the left or the right is the truer one, it's that both are possible. So he actually provided the math that backed this up. And in his time, he was berated. He was, you know, not his theory wasn't accepted. He um, led a very tragic life. He died in his 50s. But now we have shows like Rick and Morty, Black Mirror, that borrow from Hugh Everett. And it really bothers me that mm -hmm. nobody really knows who he is. Like everyone knows who other physicists are, but no one knows who Hugh Everett is. So I've been working on a collection of poems about Hugh Everett. So I'm just going to read this, and I, I'm hoping awesome. the explanation helped a bit. It's called Poet Wrestling with the Multi-Horse Verse, and it, it borrows on this concept I've created about Space Horse, that Space Horse is like this place we need to get to, but we can't get to it because we're so stuck in our own biases and prejudices and if we could just be more free, like this is poet wrestling with the multi, uh, multi horse first theory. We'll be space horse when you do not say strange horse, a wild unplaced. There's no doomsday or danse macrobe reaching beyond seventh sealed grays and no, no seams to swat as they suck all that chaliced luck. No twelfth of never rivals who buck, not a single man hightailing of flames of space gimcrack that sets no one loose whistling into that gargantuan dark hoarseness to nearly and neatly vamoose all to never quite get there because nothing ever arrives in or at space horse so far from your thinking that this on earth is how things work in outer space strangely and it is not why you should leave for the multi-horse verse it's not a last resort to grasp via rocket or fear or Copenhagen's mass. Nothing in Space Horse is clear or quite adds up, and I regret this not one bit. 
how space horse waves do not fall or fail, but bifurcate each and every super space position horse. And when we said horse love never dies, we meant every star horse is quite fine being neither both dead and alive. There's no divorce horse of the horse and space horse, no making strange horse unless it's their exosphere engulfing all your earth to June fundamental forces, all your low grade and crummy wave functions collapsing, are all sorts of quantum gunk in our multi-horse first funk, where one world is enough and also diverging off course, so that every horse happens entirely as its own source. Oh, imagine such boundless co-horse existence. Say, a sliver here exists on your planet, for I have split within highland cattle whose star horse alien elders mixed a prick of yakhorn and everyday moss, rootless, spiraling, its rough scales to remora savanna trees. I'm straddling perhaps two more of me, splitting off even more space Icelandic horse descendants with magnificent curves in my thorns. No, I'll have none of this one world sorrow. Somewhere in Space Horse, Hugh and I meet in an endless field of vegetable Icelandic horned equus. Oh, imagine. Imagine what we would all be, all that space yak horse photosynthesis growing so much planet. Imagine all the quantum and classic reaching, a new you even, out of every main splinter, every tolting, and nay, thrashing, we, we, we. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Rosebud, thank you so much. I want to give you the the final portion uh, of this uh, discussion, conversation, just to talk about whatever you want to talk about briefly with the audience to just let us know what you're up to in the future. Um, Well, my... The book we talked about earlier, Turnaround Bright Eyes, that came out in um, October, that, uh, well, end of September, October 2019. So that's out right now from Get Fresh Books, and you can buy it directly from Get Fresh Publishing. Um, the Alice James book, If This is the Age We in Discovery, isn't going to be out until March 2021. And then I'm actually working on a new collection. Um, well, I'm working on a, a lot of stuff. I'm working on one collection in particular, though. So last year was the Periodic Table's 150th birthday. I don't know if you knew that. No idea. <laughs> so I've, I've started writing um, a series of what I call Atomic Sonnets. And each sonnet is dedicated to... Um, a periodic element, and also particles like the electron. Um, And so I've been working on that, and I've completed 50. And some of them have already come out in um, literary magazines. But I have, I I don't know when it's coming out, but um, Black Warrior Review, which is a great literary magazine, is going to publish 20 of them (laughs) in an upcoming issue. So I'm very excited about that. Um, And then I'm completing a novel that also um, utilizes this idea of the bright eyes of the otherworldly and the unknown. So just a lot of writing and a lot of I'm excited for you and and you're a busy woman. So thank you so much. (laughs) And and see you soon. Stay safe. Uh, Thank you so much again. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Peace.